Welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host Mono here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. We've entered September, so the countdown to see fall leaves has started. A lot of other regions in Japan are more famous for their leaves, but Tokyo has some pretty nice spots too. But for Nintendo fans, the biggest thing in September is easily Splatoon 3. And this episode is loaded with your favorite squids. This episode's feature is all about competitive Splatoon. I chat with pro Splatoon player Prochara all about this unique esport, improving at the game, and how Splatoon 3 will change everything. And I put in a few hours into Splatoon 3, so I'll give my thoughts on that, and hey, wanna have a bit of old Nintendo Direct speculation. Let's jump right into the feature on competitive Splatoon with guest Prochara. This episode's feature is about competitive Splatoon. Among Nintendo's franchises, Splatoon has quite a notable presence in esports, and there are many players around the world competing in high-profile tournaments. I'm lucky if I crawl out of C rank, but fortunately, I'm joined by someone who is much, much better at the game. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hello everyone, my name is Prochara. I've been a competitive Splatoon player since 2016, and I've been a top-level player throughout the majority of Splatoon 2. I also make content a bit on YouTube and stream on my Twitch. Thanks for joining me today. Well, let's start with the obvious. How did you get into Splatoon? Uh, I got the game kind of randomly for my birthday in 2015, around the end of November. So I didn't have it right on launch, but I just kind of just random gift wise. And then I played it and I ended up getting into it. It wasn't really like I, I've seen the game beforehand, but I never looked at it like, yeah, this is mega appealing to me. The ads in the West were really bad for it. So <laughs> it ended up being something that I had to get into by accident. But it was a pretty easy like after playing just for a few days, I was pretty into it. So it didn't take too long after that. What made you decide to cross over from being a casual player to someone who wanted to compete in tournaments? So when I played the game, I originally did Turf War for a while and then eventually discovered Ranked, and I mm. played that. I was actually a sticks player for a while because I had played a few other shooters, a bit of COD and Halo, not too much, but I was most familiar with sticks and didn't know about the whole motion controls thing for a while. And eventually I got to S+. I started to struggle a little bit more, so I mm. looked into a few videos. I found the motion controls one, and from there I went to S plus 99, I think like January or February 2016, so it took only a few months. And after that, I was just kind of like, well, okay, I'm the top, like top rank in the game now. So like, what do I do now? So I kind of just looked into the channel I was watching, which was called Squids Next Door, I believe. And they happened to have a video on competitive Splatoon 2 and mentioned things like Skype and squid boards and getting on a team and like competing in that. And I was like, oh, okay. So like, that's what people do next. So I'll just kind of try that. How are competitive Splatoon teams structured? Does everyone have sort of a fixed role, like one person is shooter, one person is roller, etc.? Or is it more flexible based on the map or situation? It, it kind of depends. I would say players tend to nowadays fall into roles. Back in the old days, things were a lot more uh, flexible. But now that comps have gotten a bit stricter, as like people have obviously developed and gotten better at the game, players tend to fall into either aggressive, kind of like they go for kills, play fast weapons, supportive hmm. weapons that kind of play to help the team, and uh, anchor backline weapons like your usual snipers that'll try to control space. So typically teams will be composed, excuse me, of a support weapon, an anchor, and two front lines, but it can vary. Sometimes teams have more than four members if their availability doesn't line up perfectly. 
So it can depend a little bit, but typically you'll see people fall into a few of those roles and you'll try to pick people who work well with you, like as players and fit roles that your weapons like. You want a comp that synergizes well with itself. Like if you play a blaster, you want weapons that'll help cover and be good to play around blaster. You won't want to play with things that don't play with your weapons. So you try to find teams that have like-minded goals and styles that you do. What role do you prefer on a Splatoon team? Uh, personally, right now, I'm a support player for Splatoon 3. Mm. I'm mostly going to do Dynamo Roller, since that's the weapon I really like. But I also play Range, which does have a more supportive kit in 3, but it's not a full one. So I'm a little bit more flexible than most, just kind of because my weapon pool over the years has kind of been a little bit of the middle ground. Things like Brella, Range, Dynamo, Explos. It's been a little bit more between support and aggressive. But primarily, I'm the support for the team because that's what we need. So regardless of my own weapon pool, I tend to stick with like, okay, what's the closest to my pool that also fits the role my team needs? And I try to play around that as much as possible. You've been on several teams. What are some important elements you look for in a teammate? You want someone who's going to be like motivated and have the same goals as you. If Mm. you're trying to make a team, like some people play competitive and they just want to play every few days. Some people want to play a lot. Some people want to win a tournament and be the best in the world. Some of them just want to get better for the sake of their own enjoyment. Some people are willing to VOD review. Some people are not. And typically, especially now that I have a lot of experience with teams and making a new one, I've gone through the process again and I've become much more picky with it. I've tried to like, be very open about, okay, here are all the things I want in a team. Here's what I want from a teammate. Uh, are you willing to do this? Do you agree with these goals? Do you also like that? If I had to narrow it down to specific things, I would probably go along the lines of dedicated, motivated to improve at the game. Like their interest to grind mm-hmm. is high. If they don't feel like really playing a lot, it's not going to matter a lot. The similar goals that I mentioned previously, and then looking for weapons that complement me. So walk me through a typical practice or scrimmage. Do you run drills, go up and down the map? What things do you focus on when improving as a team? I'm at, of course, a top level team, so it might be a little bit different from what most people do. But for us, Mm. we tend to hop into a a scrim and we have a few goals in mind, like more smaller things, like maybe at the openings we need to play around, like, okay, this guy needs to get this special first. And then our plan is to take this side of the map and then we play to hold. And then like, okay, when we hold, we need to play to set up in this spot, for example. Like we'll have a few smaller, like very noticeable goals that we can tell if we're doing or not in scrims and Mm. then focus on trying to nail those consistently. And once we have those goals down, like not just in one practice, but in multiple, like we're consistently doing the things we're talking about, that's when we'll move on to future goals. So most of the time it's just getting into a scrim with a goal in mind, playing and then openly communicating about how the games are going in between to get closer to those. And then when we accomplish those goals and get them consistent we move on to new ones to try to continue to progress and then occasionally we'll also do a vod review as a team where we'll look over everything just to make sure like is there anything we're not noticing in the middle of the game are there new problems we need to work on or is there anything that we might have missed to keep in mind having that kind of uh overhead or everyone watching pov just being able to look back at your games can help you notice a lot that you don't really see in the moment Are there any weapons or weapon classes you would say are a must-have when playing in a competition? At the moment, it's a bit harder to say because we're transitioning games, and that means Mm. that patches are going to change things a lot. I would say there's more, like, necessary qualities you need in a comp. Like, you'll typically want a special that can move the enemies, a special to support yourselves, and then one Mm. of them should be an aggressive special. And you'll typically want, okay, you better have a good enough amount of paint or special output. Like, if you have 
two blasters and a charger, you're not going to be able to paint the map and you're not going to be able to get enough specials so another team can play around it. Like, it can't be too drastic to where you don't have some key qualities in your comp. But mm. a lot of weapons can do a lot of things. Like, if you want a painting weapon that can also fight, you can run the brush, you can run a dually, you can run a shooter, you can even run the new Spultanus. Like, all of those can technically fit in your comp. So I wouldn't say it's like, yeah, you need to have uh, a shooter weapon or a 52 like maybe in some metas you might, but for the most part, I think it's more just looking at the qualities you'll need in a comp to be versatile and adaptable enough and then built around a, a few strengths and then making sure your weapons can all play around it. Ironically, the most famous mode, Turf War, is not typically featured in tournaments. Do you think there's anything about Turf War that could be changed to make it more competitive friendly or is it better off as a kind of separate thing? So Turf War is a bit complicated here in the West. I know it's a bit more common uh, in Japan, but mm. one of the issues here is we commonly play all modes, like we play all ranked modes for the most part. And while we do have map lists, they're not consistent throughout our tournaments. Like some, some tournaments will run a different map list than other ones. And so with Splatoon 2, when there's a bunch of different map and mode combinations, it becomes hard to practice anything consistently. And so throwing in Turf War on another set of like, what, 10 to 15 maps is just a lot more to practice. So that's kind of one reason I think uh, a lot of the times it's been straight away for them. The other reason is the way the game determines a victor. If, for example, in Rainmaker, you get a push to 30, that push is valuable the whole time. Like that, that has to be, you have to go past that push. In Turf War, if you're able to wipe the enemy team or get enough picks in the last like 20 to 30 seconds, because of how fast you can paint and move around the map, you can get over 50% and win <laughs> right at the end. Right. So regardless of if a team is holding for two minutes and 30 seconds, if you play really well at the end, then you win. Obviously, that doesn't mean like it's entirely luck-based or anything. Obviously, the last fight matters and good teams will know that. But it's different compared to the objective modes where it feels like the rest of the game matters a lot more and like pushes in the early game could be more impactful. Personally, what I'd want to see from Turf War is there was a shifty station in Splatoon 2 called the Bunker Games. And mm. what this had is at like one minute and 50 seconds, there would be domes that would close off sections of the map and those would no longer be accessible. So if you controlled that dome, you would have a set amount of paint that cannot be changed by the end of the game. So it meant if you were able to make a pu good push in like the first minute and you took the enemy space, then you would have some factor that would help you in the late game. And I think that would be really good for a competitive Turf War mode. How did competitive gameplay change from Splatoon 1 to 2? I think Splatoon 1 was a lot more individual focused. Part of that was just the game was very extreme. Like a lot of main weapons were very good. The specials were really broken. And you could do like a lot of individual playmaking power. You didn't really need to coordinate with others. Like you still wanted to, especially if you were at higher levels, you had to a bit. But it was much more flexible. Like, if you wanted to play an aggro weapon and really run in with a bunch of quick respawn and invincible kraken, you could. You could absolutely play like that and still do well. When 2 came out, and especially after we got used to it a lot, the game switched to being a lot more coordination, special map control based. Individual power got a lot lower, so you wouldn't really see too many good players that were entirely just forcing fights by themselves. It would always be somewhat coordinated. So I think the main shift was more individual play style to how well can you work together as a team and especially now at the end of Splatoon 2 at least in the western scene we have the best teams are ones that have typically stuck together for a long time or have good coordination skills as what stands out the most 
You've competed in some Japanese tournaments, which of course are filled with Japanese teams. Is there anything unique about Japanese Splatoon players compared to those in the West? I think in general, Japan tends to have, well, first off, it's mostly zones only, which I think is more interesting. I kind of like mm. being able to focus on that, even if some of the maps on it aren't great in two. So that's always interesting. But Japan plays much better around like an objective and a setting. Like a lot of even higher level Western players will have issues of trying to go for kills too much or not really thinking of things in a team sense, where I think in Japan it's much more, okay, we need to play around holding this area or play around the specials. They're very good at playing around map control and their resources more rather than just trying to force things. So playing against Japan is a good test of like, okay, obviously we're good at our like 1v1s and stuff like that, but we have to also be good at like matching their pacing. Like, can we track the enemy sea jet? And every time he has stingray, are we going to have armor for it? Are we going to be holding spaces? Are we going to have our specials at the right time? Like oftentimes it's a battle for just trying to preserve space or give up as little as possible without dying. And especially the main thing playing against Japan and zones is dying. Like if you're defending or like you're trying to retake the zone against a top Japanese team and you feed, you will probably lose a ton of points if not the game. Like deaths in top level Splatoon 2 are really, really punishable. So being able to really coordinate, be more careful and play around your resources becomes more important there. I would say it definitely feels different than playing against West. And I think having a mix of both is good. Western teams tend to test mechanics a bit more, like mm. they'll fight more frontliners who are going to be less afraid to take more risky fights. And you have to be ready to respond to that where Japan is more of a resource game. So I think being able to play against both teams like I've had in the past month or so, and even like years ago when I did more area cups has been really valuable to me personally. Nintendo typically only has about one official tournament per year. Do you think they need to do more in order to support the competitive community? Uh, I would like them to do more. I think the recent series of Incopolis Showdown tournaments were solid. There were a few format things I didn't like as much, but for the most part, I felt like it was a very solid tournament series, and it was a, especially a big step up from a lot of the previous ones. If we were able to get them on a more consistent basis, I think that would be good. Oftentimes, these tournaments are announced very close to when they actually happen, so if you have, like, players who are a bit older now who might have work or something it can be harder to schedule off days for it but for the most part i think if this was like a if the kind of inkopolish showdown type events happened three to four times a year i think that would be good the main thing i want to see is more in-person stuff like more of the right packs invitational we're seeing later this week in uh monday the 5th i believe mm. if we got more stuff like that i think that would be good i've gone to one personally and it was a ton of fun and I think those kind of in-person events not only like put Splatoon on a bigger stage, but they also give competitive players more of something to strive for that they really want to get. And I think it boosts a lot of motivation in the scene. But in general, I think the more Nintendo's willing to work with the scene, the better. I know pretty much all of the players and TOs in top level or competitive or even just in general in the West scene just want to see more from Nintendo for the most part. So it's like the more they're willing to work with us, the better it'll be, I think. But I can only just hope for the best that they're willing to do more stuff with Splatoon 3. And I'm, I'm fairly hopeful this PAX tournament gives me a lot of hope that we'll be seeing more than we did in Splatoon 2. For someone who wants to be a pro Splatoon player, what advice would you give? It's, it's a bit hard to kind of give something as a whole because it's a long process. Like, mm. even for me, I've been, like, at the top for a long time now, but my journey through Splatoon 1 took a long time. Like, I got to S plus 99 really fast, sure. But going from S plus 99 to competitive is a whole big experience. And especially that's the same thing today. If you're like an 
X rank 2300, 2400 player and you switch to competitive, it's a very different environment than anything you're used to. You have to kind of relearn the game in a way because you're not playing it like a solo queue player anymore. You're now in a coordinated environment versus another one. And so there's a lot of stuff to learn. You have to really figure out more about yourself. You have to figure out how to work with people, the stuff you like. You have to figure out a lot more of the specifics of the game than you really consider before. So I would say the most part is, the most important thing is being open to learning and changing your opinion. Like you don't want to be set in terms of like, I know everything or I know exactly what I want to do. You want to be open to change because you don't quite know how the competitive journey is going to go. Maybe you'll be on a team and think it'll last forever and it won't. Or maybe you think you'll want to be this like charger player. And then later you end up being something else because that's just what ends up working better. If you're able to like change and adapt to what's going on and be open to just doing what you need in order to get better and have more fun at the game, then you'll improve a lot faster. But for the most part, I think it's just that adaptability along with just trying to enjoy the process of being better. Like if you're getting from, well, in, in NA, we have like divisions and Ludi or something. But if like, if you get from like a low level player to a mid-level player, you shouldn't be like, I'm still not beating to- this top team yet. Like you should be able to be- celebrate any small amount of progress or result you get. It's a long journey and it'll... It'll go by fast if you're not thinking about it. If you don't enjoy the process getting there, then it's not going to be as fun. And I still have a lot of pleasant memories from when I was a lower mid-level player because I tried to enjoy that process as much as I could. How about for those who just want to get out of C rank in Splatoon? What advice do you have for people who just want to raise their rank a little bit? If you're going to try to raise your rank, it's mostly just like, are you willing to play and try to think about your gameplay more? It's just trying to open things up. In solo queue, especially at lower ranks, I see a lot of people just blame things all the time, like blame their teammates or blame the maps or blame their aim or something like that. And you have to drop that mindset if you want to improve it all. You have to actually just look at it in terms of, okay, what can I be doing to do better? Like you can't control your other three teammates. If they suck and you lose a game, sometimes you'll just lose the game regardless of how good you are. The only thing you can do to get better is to focus on yourself and try to figure out what you can do to get better. I also think if you're a like really low rank player, definitely try to watch like guides or higher level play. You'll pick up a lot from looking at people who play at a higher level. You'll notice like habits or things they do that you might not that you can implement to your gameplay. And of course, especially if you find like guides from higher ranked players, they'll tell you a lot of advice directly. You could look up things like uh, if you play Tenebrella, you could look up a guide for that weapon. Or you could just try to look up basic tips like how to rank up and they'll probably tell you a few things. So anything, any kind of resource you can get is valuable. And then also just be able to look at your own gameplay and use the new replay mode. Watch back your own matches. That will help a lot in ranked. It's a bit early, but what are your thoughts on how competitive gameplay will change in Splatoon 3? I think it's going to be a lot better. I think Mm. Splatoon 1 was too individual focused. It was very fun if you preferred that very aggressive style. But there was still a lot of uh, parts of the game that didn't feel fully developed, like the specials, there wasn't really as much back and forth, and the coordination didn't really get to shine. In Splatoon 2, I felt like it was kind of the opposite, like individual plays didn't get to shine as much, but coordination got more of a spotlight. And what I kind of want Splatoon 3 to do is kind of hit that middle ground where you can still see impressive individual plays and back and forth with the specials, but coordination is still important enough to where... If you're just four people running forward without a plan, it's not going to work very well. And I think three does that for the most part. The specials look way more back and forth. Like they look a lot more, you can fight them or have multiple options where in like top level Splatoon 2, if there was like a missile and array going off, you don't, you don't fight then. You have to 
live the special and then go afterward. It was all about your timing rather than actually being more back and forth. And on top of that, I think the movement options and the overall balancing, like things like intensify action up to help things like blasters. We have movement options for slower weapons and like dualies can cancel them into their dodge rolls. Like all that stuff, I think also increases the variety of weapons, which is kind of the other hope I have for three. Splatoon 2 and 1 kind of ended in not very well-balanced metas. Like Splatoon 2 is mostly shooters at the top and Splatoon 1 was like only a handful of weapons. I, w I don't want to see every weapon viable, but I more want to see like if you're a Splatling player, you have options. Or if you're a Blaster player, you have choices. I think the variety of classes in Splatoon is one of the best parts about it, especially with 3 now that we have two brand new ones. We now have 11 weapon classes. And I don't really want to see a meta where we only see like shooters and the occasional one other weapon that gets played in two or out of the three classes or something like i want to see more variety and i want to see more back and forth i think if three can find that balance between the extremes of splatoon one and two it'll be significantly more fun to both play and watch than the other games i'm most curious about the tentacooler do you feel that the tentacooler will be essential in teams or is it too early to tell uh, at the moment, I don't even know if I would say it's essential right now, but if you, hmm. it feels like a thing where if you're not running a Tacticooler, you would have to play around something to deal with it because Tacticooler is very strong right now. I feel like it will probably get nerfed if not on launch, probably later because in the test fire it was very powerful, but I do like the special as a whole. I think it's a good kind of, it allows you to come back in and move really fast. It allows the play to be more aggressive, but not like, it's not like Splatoon 1 where you can run in and just get quick respawn all the time. Like you get right. your quick respawn and mobility buffs, but only when you use the special. So it still has a kind of timing coordination base. Your team has to go pick it up, that kind of thing. I think Tacticooler is a very good mix of Splatoon 2 and 1 values. And it's a very nice combination that I think can be healthy for the game long-term and just open up a lot of more creative strategies. I do think it needs to tone back a little bit, but I hope they don't over nerf it too much. But if I had to say at the moment with just the experience of the Splatfest thus far, I'd say most teams will probably have one. But if you really don't want to run one and you have a comp that works without it, then you probably don't need to run one. But you would have to be you would have to work a lot harder to not run a tacticooler than if you were to just run one in your comp. Let's talk a bit about your YouTube channel. Originally, you posted VODs of your matches, but you've been shifting towards more analysis and guides. What kind of content are you looking forward to covering when Splatoon 3 comes out? So for Splatoon 3, I kind of want to do a little bit of a mix of both. I want to do gameplay, especially highlighting competitive stuff and discussions. Mm. What I tend to do right now is I will do uh, two gameplays and two discussions a week, and I'll try to mix some guides in where the discussions would normally go, but I try to have a bit of a mix of that. So a bit that shows off like how well I play the game or what I'm doing with the team or what other people are doing. But I also want another part that looks at the game more in depth or tries to look at certain aspects. I kind of like to just look at bite-sized sections like the specials or uh, how a certain weapon was balanced or something like that and try to figure out how that's impacted the game and its player base. Like why don't people like damage up? Why does damage up have like such a hated reputation? What's the problem with that ability specifically? What does it do that makes the game not fun? And then kind of talk about that and try to understand it. I think it's really important when looking at Splatoon from an analytical perspective, not just from like getting better at the game, but trying to understand like what makes the game good. It's important to look at things that are quote good for the game or bad for the game and try to understand, okay, why? Why does, why do people like this thing? Why do people not like this thing? 
what are all the concrete reasons we can lay out. And for me, trying to understand more of the series and figure out what direction and changes it needs to go to continue to improve is something I find really interesting and valuable to try to look at. And last question, Shiver, Fry, or Big Man? Honestly, when I first saw the trailer, I was a Big Man fan, but right now mm. I'm kind of leaning to Shiver. I think it'll change a lot throughout the DLC, though, if we get more of a story on them. I honestly do like all of them, especially as I've looked into more like analysis on their designs. They have a lot of nice details to them, and I think mm. they're going to be a good idle pair, or trio, not a pair <laughs> anymore. But right. um, I would say I have to go with Shiver right now. I just really like their design. It's very interesting to me, and the whole shark thing theming with them is very cool. All right. Well, I'm glad I got to chat about competitive Splatoon with you. So Prochara, where can people find you? So I mostly post content on YouTube, which is just under Prochara. You can probably search up Prochara Splatoon or just Prochara and you'll probably find it. I also stream at Twitch, just twitch.tv slash Prochara. I'm less active there, but I still do a good bit of streams per week usually. And if you want to see me randomly ramble about the game and stuff, then I'm also on Twitter, once again, at Prochara. So I'm active anywhere there. I try to get to questions on Twitter DMs if anyone has anything they want to ask me and just try to overall post about the game and everything I do so people can keep up to date. Great. And listeners, the links to everything will be in the podcast description. So check it out. Once again, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on here. It was a blast. Okay, let's get into the games. Once again, thanks to Prochara for chatting with me about competitive Splatoon. Be sure to follow him on Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. The links are in the podcast description. Splatoon 3, we're finally here. Announced all the way back in February 2021, it's the latest squid shooter from Nintendo EPD. I'm a big Splatoon fan, of course. I mean, how could you not be? It really is emblematic of something only Nintendo could make. They took a tried-and-true genre, online shooters, and made something completely different from what everyone else is doing. The focus on objectives instead of KOs, the de-emphasis on precision aiming, and the killer art style all come together to make one of the most distinctive IPs in all of gaming. You look at something from this franchise and think, yeah, that could only be from Splatoon. As someone who moved to Japan right before Splatoon 2 launched, there's a weird nostalgia about the franchise with me. I was really overtaken by how heavy Nintendo pushed the game in Japan. I had always heard Splatoon on Wii U was a surprise hit over here, but Splatoon 2 was on another level. Tower Records in Shibuya had their storefront decked out with ink and squids, plus the inside had an awesome pop-up shop filled with exclusive Splatoon goods. 7-Eleven had the Ichiban Kuji raffle, with one of the prizes being an ink tank backpack. This was also the time I started to see an explosion in people carrying switches on the train. And even the weekend that came out, I distinctively remember seeing a couple with Callie and Marie shirts. The first gaming-related photo I ever took in Japan was also a big layout of Splatoon merch at Yodobashi Camera. So to experience the launch of another, even bigger Splatoon game in Japan, I gotta say I'm very, very fortunate. And what a launch it's been. I was really looking forward to seeing how Nintendo would push Splatoon 3 in Japan. It felt like they were weirdly quiet on the game, but no matter how big the game is, Nintendo really likes to wait about a month before launch before the marketing really kicks in. To say Japan is in Splatoon mania right now is an understatement. Nintendo really went all out with the advertising for this game over here. 
If you've been following my Twitter, you've seen the wild stuff they've been doing. For one, there's a huge collaboration with 7-Eleven. It's basically now Splatoon Mart. There are Splatoon banners outside and inside the store. You can buy squid burgers, donuts with ink designs, other desserts, squid gummies, a Turf War curry where there's rice in the middle and two different curry on the sides. There's Splatoon Instant Ramen, bath bombs with squishy squids inside. There's another Ichiban Kuji raffle and you can win a plushie of small fry. You can also buy a bunch of ice cream to get clear files and other Splatoon keychains for free. And this is just at 7-Eleven. Baskin Robbins also has a special Splatoon flavor with unique cups and a cookie shaped like a squid or octopus. The ice cream is pretty good, cream soda and grape. I prefer the more naturalistic flavors like chocolate or matcha, but hey. JR East trains also have Splatoon quizzes that play on the monitors inside the train. There have been Mario and Animal Crossing ones in the past, so Splatoon is at least that popular in Japan. What else? Of course, there's the Deep Cut concert at Nintendo Live next month. Kagoshima also has a Splatoon-branded streetcar. Awesome city, by the way. Nintendo Tokyo got a lot of Splatoon 3 merch recently, including the ripped-up shirt you start the game with. Plus, outside their shop has a huge Splatoon 3 mural. Really, if you're into Splatoon, Tokyo is the place to be. Or Kagoshima if you want to ride the streetcar. It really does feel like a festival atmosphere is happening in Japan with Splatoon. You've probably heard that the series is popular in Japan, and yeah, that's no lie. Splatoon 2 is one of the best-selling Switch games in the country, and the official Japanese Twitter account is massively popular and has way more engagement than the English one. Why is Splatoon so popular in Japan? Believe it or not, Yahoo Japan had an article about this very thing just a few days ago. It mostly talks about the points I made earlier, such as the cartoonish visuals and the objective-based gameplay attracting casual players. But that's not necessarily something Japan-specific. It's also the reason why it's popular worldwide. Most of the Japanese sources I've seen talking about Splatoon's popularity mostly focus on these key gameplay decisions and not some innate soul of Japan that the game imbues. Like Animal Crossing, Splatoon is a game that's just easy to get into. Everyone can play it. If you're a kid, you can play with your friends very easily too. These types of games historically have resonated more with Japan than your big AAA blockbuster titles that rank up high in the Western charts. Okay, I've mostly been talking about stuff I've seen in stores and not the actual game itself. This episode is soon after launch, so I haven't dedicated a ton of time to the game, but I have managed to put in some hours into everything the game has to offer. Can I just say, it's great to start off fresh in a new Splatoon game. The series in general has a heavy emphasis on grinding money, weapons, power-ups, so to get rid of everything you've built up seems risky, but it's awesome just to come in at the start and take everything with a fresh new perspective. The game gets some flag for being iterative and not reinventing the wheel, but once you play the game, you can see that many of the changes might not be huge, might not be something you slap on the poster as the selling point, but they're indeed very worthwhile and make the game feel, that's right, fresh. For one, completely mixing up these subs and specials for the existing weapons is already a game changer. I know they did this with Splatoon 2, but it seems even more ambitious here. Give a weapon the suction bomb and hey, that makes people want to try it out. My Precious Inzap no longer has the ink shield, but instead the Tacticooler, one of the more interesting new specials in the game, and something that really seems like it will have a big effect in ranked battles. It's very easy for vets of Splatoon to just stick with one weapon. In Turf War, I used Aerospray RG most of the time. Yeah, that's the newbie weapon, but it gets the job done. 
but now I'm way more interested in trying out different weapons due to the subs and specials getting mixed around, plus the two new weapon classes. I tried out the Stringer and Splatana during Splatfest and drifted more towards the Splatana. However, now I'm really digging the Stringer bow. It's got a good range and a diverse moveset, so you always are adapting to the situation. Maybe I'm biased because in my last match, I used it to completely wipe out the tower and win the game, but now I'm thinking maybe I should make it my main. And that's great. Don't just fall into old habits. This new game is the perfect chance to mix up your playstyle. The actual battles are as good as they've ever been. The new spawn system is great as you have way more flexibility on where you start and it also subtly communicates with the team about your intentions. I haven't really used Squid Surge a lot, but Squid Roll is definitely a skill you need to master. Right now, I think a lot of people aren't really using it, but once you've tried it out, it's something that you need to be doing every match. Maybe this is just my supposition, but having just played Splatoon 2 recently, everything in 3 feels faster and controlling the character is more precise and smoother. Not that it was ever clunky, but Nintendo has once again fine-tuned the game to make it feel even better. The UI changes are also great. Even something as small as the wipeout text appearing when the entire enemy team is KO'd is so helpful in the actual game. Plus, I haven't even mentioned the lobby, which now lets you practice, see other players, and gives you something to do instead of just waiting during a loading screen. A big theme of Splatoon 3 is, yeah, these changes are not huge when talking about them, but once you experience it in the game, you can see that it's filled with a ton of smart, player-friendly inclusions. I've also played a bit of the single-player mode. No spoilers here, but I'm really digging it. It's not wildly different from the other two, but the format of the mode is something new with a lot of fun things you can do in the overworld. Splatoon 2 had a very puzzle-focused overworld where you need to figure out how to even get to the next level. It could be frustrating at times since you often need to do something complicated to get to the actual stage. In Splatoon 3, there are more open hub areas that emphasize exploration. Parts of it honestly remind me of Mario Odyssey and even Breath of the Wild. Okay, really just the goop is like the malice from Breath of the Wild. But hey, take anything you want from that game. It's okay. You can decide which part of the area you want to explore by opening up new paths so everyone will have a different journey. There are also a ton of secrets to find, such as items for your locker, cards for a table turf battle, and even new music tracks, so you'll want to scrub every inch. In past games, the single player mode was pretty divorced from everything else, so it's cool to see that stuff you can find here also can be used elsewhere. It's filled with a ton of optional areas and stages that are incredibly creative. One takes away your weapon and you need to use your salmon buddy to help navigate the stage. Another challenge needs you to destroy everything in one shot. One of my favorites so far has you navigate a maze horizontally, but then it flips itself and then you need to traverse it again vertically. Like the past games, you get to try out a variety of weapons and overall it's a good tutorial for Splatoon in general in terms of movement, aiming, and how the weapons work. Don't be afraid to clear out single player mode before even jumping into a multiplayer lobby. Oh, and the boss fights. I've only done two, but both were stellar. The second one especially made me think, how does Nintendo even come up with this? The single player modes in these games have always been excellent, and while I can't say this is the best one yet, it's deeply impressed me thus far. Salmon Run is also back, and now you can do it whenever. Part of the allure of the original Salmon Run was that it had time-exclusive items, so you really needed to grind out those levels in order to get new gear. Now that you can do it at any time, they've adjusted the rewards a bit. There's still only one piece of gear you can nab, 
but you can get it multiple times and swap it out for one with the main ability you like. The gotcha capsules are also present, and honestly, if you are short on cash, this may be the best way to nab some coins. I had one reward that got me 32,000 gold. That would definitely take me more than a few turf wars to earn. Another currency are fish scales you get when fighting king salmonids. These can unlock special customization items. Not every run will have a chance to get these. You really need to bring your A game if you want to get the most out of it. In terms of gameplay, the biggest addition in my mind is the egg throw. You can now hurl eggs into the basket or to other players. This sounds small, but it's such a great addition. You can't hurl it freely though, it costs ink. About the same as a sub weapon, so you really do need to be a bit conservative with it at times. The egg throw helps keep matches focused more on splatting salmon instead of just hauling yourself back to the basket. You can even work out an assembly line. I had two guys throwing eggs towards me while I picked them up and put them into the basket. Now that's teamwork. There are some new enemies here too, like Mudmouth, which is like a huge screaming mouth and you need to repeatedly toss several bombs in it. And the biggest new enemy is Kohozuna, a Godzilla-esque salmon. He doesn't randomly appear. You have to charge up a meter throughout several matches. It took about six salmon runs before he appeared. When he does though, you really need to focus all your firepower on him. But other bosses also pop up to distract you. However, it is timed, so you really need to take him down ASAP. I think it'll take some time before people figure out a good Kohozuna strategy, so get used to losing for a bit. Losing the extra wave has no penalty though, so don't worry. Since everyone would presumably have a different Kohozuna meter, I'm not sure how this is calculated. Are you matched with people who have all filled out their meter? Or if one person has the meter filled, can you theoretically get Kohozuna to appear multiple times in a row? Either way, Salmon Run is as good as ever, and the X-Row Edition and the new enemies are fun to take down. I honestly don't really like horde modes in games, but Salmon Run is absolutely my jam. And speaking of this, I think people were kind of expecting a Salmon Run-like edition in Splatoon 3. Some new mode that's as creative and interesting as Salmon Run. But we don't really have that. I can see Nintendo being a bit concerned about splitting the player base. The worst thing you can possibly do in an online shooter is not have enough people to match up with in a reasonable amount of time. If you've got some people in Turf War, some in Ranked, some in Salmon Run, some in Single Player, some in the card game, plus some in a completely new mode, I can see Nintendo being hesitant about spreading everyone out when the goal is to get everyone into a match as soon as possible. Though maybe they're saving a big new mode for later down the line to refresh the player base. Kind of like how they added new rank matches. I know a lot of people want some sort of battle royale, and I think the Splatoon team would have a really fun take on it. Even if it was something like 16 players, it could be really interesting. Now, while it's not a Salmon Run tier edition, it's not something that uses the core Splatoon mechanics in a new way, the Tabletop Battle card game is more fun than you'd expect. You have a deck of 15 cards with blocks that make a specific shape, and your goal is to have the most blocks of your color on the board at the end of the match. So it's very much a turn-based turf war. There are even special attacks you can use. The game is very simple to play and understand, but deck building requires a bit of strategy and the matches are very close. The computer is not a pushover either. When playing the game, you can't just place your shapes wherever. They have to touch your existing area and can't overlap with another player's unless you do a super attack, or if you both coincidentally place it down in the same area on the same turn. The mechanics are very clever, and there's a bit of Tetris slash RE4 fiddling around with shapes to make things fit. 
one of the coolest additions about the game is that you can fight the AI of other real life players. In Splatsville, some people will have a card mark next to their name and you can face their deck and win cards. This is an awesome addition that will keep people playing. I wish you could play this game online against a real live opponent, but maybe they thought that would just be not worth the hassle. I wonder how balanced the game is or if it's a more video gamey card game where you clearly get better cards as you level up. Kind of like how Gwent was in Witcher 3. That game also has a lot of strategy and cool deck building theory crafting, but yeah, eventually you just got super cards that you could put in your deck that really tip the scales in your favor. There are 162 cards and I promise you here and now that I will get them all. Another thing I want to touch on is customization, which is a big focus of the game. You can now customize your character in more ways than ever before. Of course, you've got gear, but now you also have a name banner with custom backgrounds, titles, and badges. You can also unlock emotes that play when you win a match. The most customization heavy feature is the locker, which you receive at level four. Here you can shove anything you own into it, weapons, gear, and a ton of other trinkets you can buy in shops or unlock. If you like decorating in Animal Crossing, or again, love RE4's item system, you'll love the locker. I've already seen so many awesome layouts just even after a few days of playing. There's an unbelievable amount of items you can unlock. Books, posters, samurai armor, model trains, statues, anatomical models. It's really a bite-sized version of Animal Crossing. Maybe some people won't care about this, but I really think it's an awesome addition and being able to see other people's lockers is a really clever idea. Honestly, I wish you had more personal lockers or I guess the next step is your own room. The game has a ton of things to unlock, so for people susceptible to the carrot on a stick method of gameplay design, there's definitely a lot of carrots in Splatoon 3. The game was always a bit grindy in terms of unlocking gear or buffing them to your liking, but now there's just so many things the game throws at you that it at least feels like you're getting something on the way to your bigger goal. So those are my early impressions on Splatoon 3. Yes, it's certainly iterative in some ways, but there's plenty of things to do in the game and every new edition is for the better. If you're an existing Splatoon fan, you'll be very happy. And if you're interested in the series, now is the perfect time to jump in. It's not overwhelming at all, even though there's a lot of things you can do. I'll likely discuss Splatoon 3 again in the future once I spend a bit more time with it, but I'm glad to be back into this world, back into the ink. Okay, so Nintendo Direct. There's gotta be a September Direct, right? They've had one at least five years in a row, and now is the perfect timing to promote or announce your holiday titles. So at the risk of jinxing it, let's jump into some predictions. I'm going to touch on the hot rumors going around. Apparently some GameCube remasters are on the horizon. The names being thrown around are Metroid Prime 1, F-Zero GX, Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess. For those last two, specifically the Wii U versions ported over to the Switch. You should always take rumors with a grain of salt, but as we are nearing the end of the Switch's life, these types of filler titles and ports are only going to increase. If Switch 2 is 2023 or 2024, Nintendo is definitely going to dedicate a lot of their efforts on making sure the new hardware is appealing enough for people to jump from the Switch to that. So random ports, remasters, remakes, these can easily take advantage of the Switch's already huge install base and fill out the calendar while their teams are focusing on newer games. All four of these titles are good games, but to be honest, I can't see me picking them up since they're still pretty fresh in my memory. 
Plus, I live in Tokyo, so I have access to F-Zero AX in the arcades. Maybe if the F-Zero remaster also comes with a huge chair, I'll grab it. But if you've never played these titles, they're certainly worth your time. My favorite out of the four is Twilight Princess, which may be an unorthodox choice, but I do love that game. It's Ocarina of Time 2, for better or worse. And yes, the big elephant in the room is Zelda. Breath of the Wild 2 got delayed to 2023 earlier this year, and we haven't heard anything about it since. Nintendo tentatively has it listed for spring 2023. I automatically float to March, since that's when the original game came out, but Nintendo could easily say, hey, June 19th is technically spring. Whether it's May or June, I think we will get another trailer that will finally reveal the name. They've been holding on to that thing tightly, but I think it will have some tie-in with the game's story or major gameplay gimmick. We've already seen the whole sky thing, but I think that's not necessarily the main selling point or biggest change. They're not going to call it Skies of the Wild or whatever. Though I do think it would be funny if they've been hiding the name for years only to call it the incredibly obvious Skies of the Wild. As for what other gameplay features they could add, I think time travel or manipulation would be an interesting mechanic or theme. We've seen Link with an ability to reverse an object's momentum, so that might be a hint towards bigger time-related mechanics. Maybe there are actually two different Hyrules, a present one and one in the past and or future that you can swap between. Maybe these Sky Islands are exclusive to one time period. I love the weapon durability in the first game, but many complained about it, and I think Nintendo will implement some sort of compromise or change it in a new way. We've seen a busted Master Sword, which makes me think weapon degradation will still be present in some way. If I had to guess, I wouldn't be surprised if they introduced weapon crafting into this game. The first game had cooking, so instead of apples and fish, you've got hilts and shards. In a past trailer, there's a brief shot of Link with a shield that looked like it had something attached to it, so weapon augmentation or customization could be a major element of this new game. I think this could be a really interesting idea. Like your sword breaks, but you can still pick up, say, some metal shards or gems from your weapon and then use that to craft a completely new weapon. They could make it really granular where every weapon is unique and no one has the same tool set since you're kind of cobbling parts together. This would increase the menu management of the game, though, which is something I'm not sure they want to add on to since you were definitely popping open your menu a lot in the original game. I'm certainly interested in whatever they show off with Zelda, though. There's been a six-year gap between brand new Zelda titles. That's the longest gap between console Zeldas. The concept of a straight sequel to Breath of the Wild seems simple on paper, just go bigger and implement some cut ideas into the sequel, but I'd love to learn more about the history of this project. It clearly got way more ambitious than just some Majora's Mask-like remix, or maybe there was a lot of pressure to follow up on what many consider to be the greatest game of all time. I'm ready for whatever they show, though. Let's see it. Another big Nintendo title? A new Fire Emblem. I thought for sure that we would see a new Fire Emblem SRPG this year, but it doesn't seem likely. I've brought this up several times, but Intelligent Systems has an incredible streak when it comes to releasing games on Nintendo hardware. They've released at least one game per year on a Nintendo platform since 1998. But they don't seemingly have anything for this year, and they're not credited as the developers for Three Hopes, so no, that doesn't count. Is the streak over? The greatest streak in gaming? I certainly hope not. Maybe they could put out some small downloadable title. I'm always up for more Pushmo. 
But back to Fire Emblem, there have been quite a few leaks floating around about the game. It's rumored to be co-developed by Gust, the creators of the Atelier series. This makes sense because Gust is owned by Koei Tecmo, who worked on Three Houses. Other leaks talk about past characters showing up like as assists or maybe some sort of summon, so it kind of has like an anniversary game vibe to it. And while these were technically never proven to be true, some screenshots did come out of the protagonist and some other characters. The Protag has a very striking and kind of wild design compared to past Effie Lords, so I'm curious to see the reaction to that. But a new Fire Emblem? You've sold me. Day one. I'm there. A lot of people were suspecting a remake of FE4 since that's next in line in terms of remakes, but it's been over three years since the last proper title, so a new game is very doable. I would not be surprised if we get a new Fire Emblem in 2023 and then an FE4 remake in 2024 using the same assets. Like I mentioned earlier, I think there's going to be a lot of ports, remakes, and reuses of existing assets, so there's not a drought late in the Switch's life. Also, we can't forget about existing games getting DLC. Strikers will probably have a character or two announced during the Direct. Pauline could probably be considered Direct-worthy. I had my fun with the game, but I doubt I'll go back to it no matter who they add. They would need to have some sort of meteor addition to the game to get me back starting it up again. I'm more excited for golf coming to Nintendo Switch Sports. A lot of the additions to the game post-launch have been subtle but pretty nice, like having different bowling courses during online matches. I'd like to see golf show up with a date, and then the announcement for the next sport coming in 2023. Basketball and dodgeball were datamined, and either of those sound like really awesome additions, so show them off, Nintendo. We also just got a batch of Mario Kart 8 DLC tracks, but I think another wave is likely for November or December. There are supposed to be six waves running until the end of next year, so three this year and three next year is doable. They might hold off on the next wave until January or February, though, to give more focus on new titles. Other DLC, some new characters could be added to Three Hopes. Gotta keep stacking up bodies on the Musou pile. Xenoblade is still fresh, but some more info on their already announced DLC could help keep the game's momentum. Nintendo has been very smart with adding on to their existing games in significant ways during the Switch era. Something like Splatoon 2 Octo or the Pokemon DLC are just as exciting as a new game release for many. They're definitely solid gap fillers on the calendar. And let's look at Nintendo Switch Online. Game Boy seems the most probable. If they're going to focus on individually releasing remasters of GameCube titles, Game Boy is the only thing Nintendo can turn to next in terms of throwing out old games onto their service. Unless they put in Satellaview, which they should. Game Boy emulators were leaked earlier this year, but we haven't heard anything about it. But Nintendo typically releases their big NSO editions around renewal time, aka September, aka now. I think the Game Boy and Game Boy Color app being on the basic tier and GBA being on the expansion pack is the most probable. However, the big boy is of course Pokemon. Game Freak likes to do their own thing. Even the Pokemon Virtual Console releases were different from the rest. No instant save states, no rewind, and they cost more. But they did have added features like Pokemon Bank capability, which was awesome. So I don't see them being okay with Pokemon just sitting there as one of many games on the app. They don't want to be wedged between Balloon Boy and Game & Watch Gallery. I think a completely separate Pokemon app at the expansion pack tier with Gens 1 to 3 is more likely than you would think. 
If it came with home integration, I think it would help people get over the initial rage. Though Pokemon rage lingers longer than most types. Game Freak could also do what they did with the Virtual Console and release them as individual games you buy for $10 to $15 on the eShop. Though with Gen 9 coming out in two months, do they really want to release their old titles so close together? There's so many what-ifs with the Pokemon Game Boy titles. Put them on the NSO app, but with no home integration, release a separate app solely for Pokemon, just sell the old games, or just not do anything. If you're Nintendo though, you want Pokemon to put eyes on the Game Boy NSO app and NSO in general. The release of a Game Boy app without Pokemon is like if Disney Plus didn't have Marvel content. Maybe there will be some sort of compromise, and the promise that Pokemon titles will come, but not at launch. This allows Scarlet and Violet to be the only Pokemon games you should think about this winter and still have something on Nintendo's 2023 slate to look forward to. PC Engine, aka TurboGrafx NSO app, coming to Switch would also be really fun, but I wonder if that's a bit too obscure to just launch by itself. It would have to come with the Game Boy, I think. Mario. What's Mario doing these days? He's in a lot of Switch games, but the question, when is the next Mario platformer and what will it be, gets more and more difficult to answer. We had Odyssey, his big new outing, in 2017. 2019 had the new Super Mario Bros. U port and Super Mario Maker 2. 2021 had the 3D World port, but now Nintendo is kind of at the end of the rope in terms of what Mario platformers they can shove out on the Switch. And again, if we are really just one or two years away from new hardware, do you really want to throw a brand new Mario platformer out there so quickly? Odyssey once again proved how vital it is to have a big Mario game close to launch. I love new Super Mario Bros. U, great game, but it was a bad game to show off new hardware. You want something like 64 or Odyssey to make people jump on board. Could Switch get Odyssey 2? Super Mario Galaxy 2 launched about two years before new hardware, and we may be at that point now, so maybe. I do think a 2D Mario title is a bit more likely. It might not be new Super Mario Brothers, though. I love that series, but a lot of people are kind of tired of it, and I really think Nintendo has kind of taken it as far as they can. People want a fresh take on a new 2D Mario, whether it be a completely new visual style or the introduction of some major new movement or gameplay mechanics. A lot of people have said they want a 2D art style, and honestly, I think that would be a really fresh take. Again, more rumors. But it's been said that Nintendo EPD is working on a Donkey Kong title. This would be the first time they've touched the series. I'm very curious to see their take on the franchise. The DKC series was really neck and neck with Mario in the Super Nintendo days, but it hasn't kept up that momentum. Maybe Nintendo has something specific they figured out with the franchise and want to see how it fares. Or maybe Retro simply has their hands tied with Metroid Prime 4, which by the way, we probably won't see on this next Direct. Nintendo also loves their casual titles, and we might see something here. A smaller casual franchise getting a game in December isn't out of the question. Just look at Big Brain Academy from last year. Nintendo still has Nintendogs and Tomodachi Life in their back pocket, two games that could easily push 5 million units. Both games don't need a whole lot of promo either. They're not games that rely on a huge launch. They'll have legs. There is also the rumor of Everybody's 1-2 Switch, the sequel to the launch party game 1-2 Switch. Apparently this game is just straight up terrible and not fun at all. It's supposed to be more similar to Jackbox, but you know, if they remove the enjoyment out of that game. 
It's apparently done or close to being done, but it's so bad that Nintendo is maybe a bit clueless about what to do with it. There were rumors that it was going to come out in May, but we didn't see it then and it's not been officially announced yet. If it really is that bad, I think having it as a free NSO game would quell at least some of the negativity. Third parties. These are always a bit hard to predict. We always talk about heavy hitter Nintendo franchises showing up in these directs, but they're often filled with a lot of lower profile third party games. Astria Ascending was shown at an E3 direct. Remember Astria Ascending? But here's some games I'd at least like to see. Number one on my list, of course, is Tunic. It launched on Xbox earlier this year and is hitting PlayStation this month. Obviously, some work has to be put in to make it run on Switch, but I think Nintendo audiences would eat this game up, so I'd imagine they're doing everything they can to get the game on the platform. Maybe a December release is possible. I'd also really like to see Wildermyth show up. The dev said that they are working on a Switch version, but it would take at least a year due to the game's code. Even a short trailer with an ambiguous 2023 date would get me excited. It Takes Two is also heavily rumored, and it seems like it would be a big hit on Switch. And hey, I'm always up for some more retro collections. Looking forward to Mega Man Battle Network games for sure. I've always wanted a big Bomberman collection. So many games are Japan only, so that might be difficult to put out. But even like a Super Bomberman collection or the handheld Bomberman games, just something. They do have R2 on the horizon, so... Maybe it's unlikely to get a collection this soon. Back to the rumor mill, Metal Gear Solid 1 to 3 may be getting a re-release. You'd think that that would pop up on Switch as well, right? I'm a MGS fan, and those are great games if you've never played them, so keep an eye on that. I want Ghost Babble though, the Game Boy Color game. Even in Japan, carts are absurdly expensive. Square has about 30 more games to release this year, and I'm sure we'll see more on Harvestella and Tactics Ogre, two games I'm really excited for. November has Tactics Ogre, then Harvestella the next week, then Pokemon the week after that. You can't release Tactics Ogre in October or something? Let's breathe a bit. Other stuff, we'll see more Bayonetta, maybe some hints towards more Splatoon content, Mario plus Rabbids, and maybe something with Scarlet and Violet. It's always hard to tell if Pokemon will pop up in these directs or not. As for other new Nintendo announcements, a Kirby Game & Watch is possible. It is his anniversary year, and we're not sure if Kirby's appetite is satiated yet. I do think the big closing segment will be Breath of the Wild 2. Predictable, but hey, it's what everyone wants to see. I think Nintendo has a ton of things to show off in their next direct, and a lot of it will come out this year, so get excited. That's it for games. Let's look at some news. pretty quiet recently, but I think we're getting a Nintendo Direct this week, and Tokyo Game Show is just a few days away, so the news feature should be pretty big next episode. There are still a lot of cool things to talk about now. And what's cooler than Pokemon? The answer is nothing. We've got a new trailer for Scarlet and Violet. A bit light on the groundbreaking information, but we've got some more clarification regarding some of the things hinted at in past trailers. We now know more about the three stories. One is the typical Pokemon League plot, where you battle gyms and eventually become the champion. The next one revolves around Team Star, the villain team of this generation. Appropriately, they're a biker gang, and the bosses ride huge Decatora vehicles. Decatora are a type of gaudy, very loudly decorated trucks that were popular in Japan in the 1970s. I suppose they're still around, but mostly as attractions and not something you see driving down the road. 
Maybe the offshoot of the Decatora are the LED trucks that drive around Shinjuku advertising host and cabaret clubs. It's cool to see some Japanese flair in the game, even though it takes place in Spain. Team Star looks a bit plain. They just have school uniforms with helmets and star-shaped goggles. Thankfully though, the boss, Mela, looks really rad and has a great design. I'm a bit worried that most of the people you come across in the game are just other students with the same tie and shorts get up, but maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. The second story revolves around you finding the Herba Mystica in the layer of the Titans, which are huge Pokemon you battle. Seems like a mix of the Alpha Pokemon from Arceus and the Totem Pokemon from Sun and Moon. I suppose this will tie in with the Terra Power and the regional legendaries in some way. And apparently all three stories are somewhat tied in with the whole treasure hunt theme. So maybe that's actually the big MacGuffin of the game. Again, I'm curious about how these three stories are structured. Can you complete one way before the others? Do they all need to hit a certain point before you can progress? I suppose this will tie in naturally with the open world, especially with the level gating the game seems to have. There's a screenshot where the protagonist has a level 15 Fue Coco against Mela's level 27 Torkoal. I'm wondering if there's some sort of number fudging when it comes to Pokemon trainer stats here. In Arceus, with the way these stats were calculated, it was possible to be a Pokemon well above your level, but in the actual games, it's incredibly difficult. Like, could a full team of level 15 Mons beat a team of two level 27 Pokemon? I guess we'll see. And we got some new Pokemon. The best one, of course, is Cloth, which is just a hairy rock crab. He's got a clean but fun design. He definitely looks like a classic Pokemon. Cloth comes with a new ability called Anger Shell, where its attack and speed raises when he gets to half health. Pretty interesting idea. So he sort of starts off tanky, but then can turn into a more aggressive attacker as his HP falls. The other two Pokemon are Armor Rouge and Cerulege. These are two completely different Pokemon, even though they look nearly identical. Armor Rouge is red and attacks with a Samus-like blast cannon, while Cerulege fights with swords. This ties in with the game's theme of past and future, and I'm sure we'll see some other Pokemon with this gimmick. The trailer was a bit light on earth-shattering revelations, but I think it's safe to say that Game Freak wants to keep their cards a bit close until launch. We're only two months away, and there's so much we don't know about. Maybe a Pokemon Presents in October could be a big blowout, but I can see them just keep releasing these smaller trailers until launch. Nintendo is holding their Nintendo Live event on October 8th and 9th in Tokyo. Old news, yes, but they recently announced that there will be two concerts on the 9th, one featuring KK Slider and the other one with Deep Cut from Splatoon 3. These should be like the hologram concerts they've done before in the past. You can't buy a ticket directly for Nintendo Live, you first need to enter a lottery. I entered and I'm waiting on the results, but then I remembered something very, very important. You see, October 8th to 10th is a three-day weekend in Japan, and I've already made plans to visit Super Nintendo World in Universal Studios Japan that weekend. I completely double-booked myself. So even if I win the lottery to buy a ticket for Nintendo Live, I can't go. Sorry, I was really looking forward to sharing this event with everyone, but I'll hopefully have a guest on that will maybe share their insight. If the event does well, maybe they will keep it in Tokyo for next year, though I can see them flipping it back to Kyoto or the Kansai area next year as well. But hey, these are first world problems. Oh, I can't go to Nintendo Live because I'm going to a Mario theme park. Boohoo, woe is me. Super Nintendo World is definitely going to be a feature on an upcoming podcast episode, 
So hopefully I can feature both Nintendo Live and Super Nintendo World very, very soon. Oh, I forgot to mention this in the Pokemon part, but there is another new Pokemon, Grafii, who is an eye that paints with its gross fingers. It's normal poison. Dual normal types have always bugged me. Are they normal because they have no distinct feature? Oh, you're normal and poison? Sorry, you're just poison. That overrides your normalness. I'm not a huge fan of the look of this thing. It's very colorful, but also a bit gawky and creepy. It's the weird eyes, though it fits with the inspiration. This Pokemon and its habitat is inspired by a real forest in Spain known for its colorful designs painted on the trees, so it's always really cool to see real-life inspirations pop up in a Pokemon game. Now that I live in Japan, I really appreciate a lot of the places in old games because although the graphics couldn't convey them accurately, many Pokemon places based on Japan still have some key elements and retain the atmosphere of the place. When I played Diamond and Pearl back in the day, I thought Sinnoh was an excellent overworld, but now after visiting Hokkaido, I was able to understand how clever a lot of the places in the game were since I've been to them in real life. I do wish they would set another Pokemon game in Japan, but the rest of the world is still pretty untapped in terms of ideas. It's been a while since there's been a high-profile Kickstarter game, but now there's two worth talking about. Arm Fantasia and Penny Blood had a dual Kickstarter. I didn't even know you could do that. What's so special about these games? They're from Masuzo Machida and Akifuma Kaneko, who also worked on Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts. And yes, looking at these two games, you immediately think Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts. Arm Fantasia is a fantasy Wild West, while Penny Blood has a Victorian Gothic type of look. Since both Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts are probably far away from their next entry, it's cool that fans of these franchises have at least something to look forward to. I've dabbled a bit in both of these, and I've enjoyed them. Shadow Hearts Covenant especially is an incredibly interesting game with a unique setting. Rasputin shows up, who is one of the more JRPG-esque real-life villains. I also played Wild Arms 3, which is kind of a standard JRPG, but I know the series has some hardcore fans. One of my old friends swore Wild Arms 2 was one of the greatest games of all time, so maybe it's one of those classics I just haven't gotten around to yet. Record of Lodos War Chronicle came out in Japan a few days ago for PC. It's a collection of 14, yes, 14 retro Record of Lodos War games. These are mostly old Japanese computer titles, like from the PC-98, but a few Super Nintendo games are also included. I love seeing these licensed games get another chance. Many of them are stuck in some sort of legal limbo, so with this set and the recent Turtles Kawabunga collection, it really does feel like almost any game could get released on modern hardware. Will this get a Western release? Very unlikely since, yeah, all the games are untranslated. There was that Deedlet game that was released earlier this year, and I'll get around to playing that eventually. I really loved the Lodos War OAV back in the day. The animation was mind-blowing, and I still think it holds up today. Square Enix announced Voice of Cards, The Beast of Burden, will be coming out in September. If you've lost track, this is the third Voice of Card game released within a year. I talked about the first one on this very podcast, and while it was enjoyable, it didn't really utilize the cards in any interesting way in terms of gameplay. I'm surprised they've cranked out three of these so quickly since a big part of the appeal was the presentation and voice acting. It didn't look super cheap to make. Hey, how about another Dungeon Encounters? Though I can't complain about Square not releasing something, considering there's at least two games they're putting out this year that I'll nab. Now for the Japanese gaming phrase of the week. This week's phrase is nurige, 
Nuruge. This is short for Nurui game, with Nurui meaning lukewarm. It refers to a game that can be beaten very easily, one with no challenge. It's mostly used negatively though. Like Kirby games are easy to beat, but they're still exciting, so it doesn't fall into that category. I think it refers to titles where the difficulty balance really makes or breaks the quality of the game. Once again, Nuruge. And the Japanese tweet of the week. I picked one from Henley H. It's a set of photos showing off his amazing game collection. They're wide shots, so it turns into kind of a fun scavenger hunt of what retro goodies you can find. I immediately spotted the Jeffrey N64 controller. Jeffrey, as in the giraffe from Toys R Us. There was an extremely limited controller in Japan that was just a black N64 controller with a Jeffrey sticker on it. There's a ton of other rare, more interesting items, but hey, I really want that controller. The tweet is in the description, so see what you can find. That's all this time. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. And if there's anything you want me to talk about, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be Sunday, September 25th. I'll be talking a lot about the Tokyo Game Show. See you next time. Matane. Matane.